John chapter 12 is where you should be this morning. Um, We continue to move through this book, and last week in the first few chapters uh, of John chapter 12, we saw that Jesus was at a dinner party with uh, Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. If you've missed that story, you need to go back and look at John chapter 11. It's an amazing story. Uh, He raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, He's at a dinner party with Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And in that moment, Mary, uh, just so overwhelmed with who God is and what he has done, how he saved the life of uh, her her brother, and in very real ways saved uh, her own life. She's just so overcome that she takes that which is most valuable to her, uh, and she breaks it open, pours it at the feet uh, of Jesus. That was, that was last week, and everyone thinks Mary's crazy because of that, but Jesus in that moment affirms, his worship, affirms her worship and says, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm about, that's what I'm after, that's what I'm looking for, that level of worship. And so that's the next day now where where we are in our text this morning. The sun rises as Bethany. The crowd has heard that Jesus is here. So the same Jesus that raised Lazarus, this story is seriously trending in society right now. And so these, this crowd has amassed um, and they're just showing up and they are kind of at like a fever pitch um, around who Jesus is. And, and they're in town and they want to they wanna see the show that is, um, that is Jesus. So look at verse Look at verse 12 in chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So the crowd is going crazy. And they go and they grab these palm branches um, and they start waving them. Now, now Jesus is in Bethany, uh, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And a lot of scholars think that this crowd uh, wasn't just kind of all hanging out in Jerusalem. When they heard about Jesus, they, always, they started to kind of move down the road towards where Jesus was in Bethany. So it's kind of like they're, they're lining the path of where Jesus is going to be going towards Jerusalem. And they're waving these palm branches. And that might not seem uh, like something that's very significant to you. It might seem actually kind of odd. So we need to know the background backstory uh, and why this, why the palm branches are actually significant. Um, so traditionally, the palm branches were something that would only come out during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. If you're with us when we were going through that, and John, you kind of remember when the, when the people were celebrating when the nation was celebrating that. And God told them to bring those out. God told them to bring those out when they were celebrating or commemorating how God rescued his people from the nation of Egypt when they were slaves and how he freed them from the tyranny of that nation. And so they were supposed to be set apart for that festival, um, although the people would bring them out at other moments uh, of celebrating national victories. For for instance, um, the Jews broke down out when Simon of Maccabees destroyed the Syrian forces that had invaded Jerusalem. He was a, a victor over his enemy. He came riding into the city on his war horse, and as he rode in, they broke out the palm branches and they waved them in his honor. And every time the nation of Israel uh, was planning an insurrection against a foreign power, they would, they would print their own money, uh, and they would put uh, these palm branches on their money, or they would mint new coins. 
coins and they would put these palm branches on their coins. So the palm branch is a symbol of nationalist zeal. It's a symbol we're about to take over. And, and, and they would be used to celebrate the, the victor. Um, but, but what's happening here is they're waving palm branches at Jesus uh, because they are hanging their nationalistic hopes on this person, Jesus. So they're, they're lining the road, the crowd is huge, they're waving these palm branches, and not only do they pull out the palm branches, but they start to chant Hosanna, which is from a, a Hebrew word, Hoshana, and Hoshia means save, and Na is now or right away. So it's a request. They're, they're shouting out, please save us now, give salvation now. And the people get this from Psalm 18, uh, and every Jew would know this song. It's part of the Hallel. It's sung every morning by the temple choir during the Feast of Tabernacles. They would sing it as well during a Passover. But Psalm 118 says this, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So, so, so in essence, the people are waving the palm branches and they're saying, Lord, save us. The one blessed by the Lord is here to save us. And, and John tells us, though, that they actually changed the phrase from Psalm 118 um, because it was less of a cry for help and more of a cry for victory because in Psalm 118, uh, they, John tells us that they say, blessed is the king of Israel, which kind of changes the intent of the psalm, but it reveals the intention of the people. What's happening here in essence is that these people, in their mind, they are welcoming in a national liberator. The people are welcoming in their kind of national victor, the one who is coming to crush Rome, to free them from Rome, to take over, to lower taxes. That's what they're anticipating. That's what they're expecting. And so they're waving palm branches and they're shouting, Hoshina, Hoshina, Hoshina. You want to do that, don't you? Right? <laughs> the king is here. And, and if you've been with us in John or you know John, there, there's something that you're kind of thinking right now as you're reading this because there was another moment, if you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, they came at him with the same fervor. They're like, okay, we want to make you king. What did Jesus do there? He dipped. He's out of there. He's like, that's not what I'm here for. That's not what I'm about. And so if you're reading this, you're kind of like, well, what's he going to do now? And, and, and the crowd is in a, is in a frenzy. I mean, this is like a, a crazy, crazy crowd. And it's not just like, oh, there's 50 people there. There's 100 people there. Scholars think there's, there's anywhere between 2 to 2.7 million people who would be there. And, and, and there's animals, and it's loud, and they're shouting, and they're waving palm branches. I, I, uh, I grew up in uh, Tampa, Florida area, and so I don't ha we didn't have a lot of sports victories, like parades kind of things. Um, but, but I remember a couple years ago when the Cubs won the National Ser or the World Series. Cubs. Good for you guys. <clears throat> Two of you. Um, so they, they, they said at, at that parade, uh, there, there were like five million people who were a part of that. Uh, and so it's just, it's just, it's that kind of mentality. It's like this victory parade, 
palm branches, people are shouting, people are going crazy. And, and we already know Jesus, this was not what he was about back in when, what the feeding of the 5,000. But now in this moment, he looks at the crowd, he looks at his disciples, and he says, I'm going to ride in. The crowd is at a fever pitch. He says, I'm going to ride in. Now, that might not seem like much to us, but to his disciples, that would have just hit them like a bombshell uh, because Jesus never rode anywhere. He, he walked everywhere. There's a couple times where he kind of teleports to different places, but he, he's Jesus, so he, he, can, he can do that. And, and, and Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem, so he, he could have walked. It doesn't necessarily warrant... Um, uh, him hitching a ride somewhere. And in fact, Mark would tell us that this ride that he takes would take all day long. And, and then he walks back to Bethany to spend the night, and then he walks back to the city the next day. So it's not like he really needs to ride. So, so why is Jesus deciding now that he's going to ride in? Because, because only one kind of person would, would ride into Jerusalem. Only one kind of person would do this, a conquering king, a king who had destroyed enemies and crushed the opposition, a king who would ride in victorious into a city and the people would welcome him into a city that he now rules. That's the only person who would ride in. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, I'm, I'm riding in. And in doing so, he's making the statement He's making the statement, I'm riding in because I am the king, and that's my city. So Jesus is going to ride in, but like Jesus does with everything else, he kind of adds a twist to it. He says, I am the king. That is my city. I am going to ride in. Get me a donkey. <laughs> I can't say it without sounding like Shrek. I got to do the thing. Look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. The text tells us in verse 16, the disciples, they don't get, they don't get it. They don't know why he's doing they're like, why are you doing this this way? I mean, Jesus, we've walked with you a couple of years now, so we, we know you've never really been great at marketing, building your own brand. We, like, we know you've really never been great at that, but this is a terrible PR move. Kings do not go in on donkeys. You need a, you need a war horse. A conquering king doesn't ride a donkey. Go find a war horse. But Jesus goes and he finds a donkey, and not just any donkey, he, he finds a, 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 a young donkey. Luke tells us that there's actually other donkeys that are available in, in, in the Greek there, but, but he picks the colt. And, and Mark would tell us that, that it's unbroken, meaning it's never been ridden before. And, and so what Jesus is doing here is really brilliant. He's signaling, look, I am the king because he's riding in, but he rides in on this animal that you hire for kids' birthday parties. And so Jesus is really, it's kind of got everybody just kind of a little bit confused about what's he really doing. 
It's kind of like this. If you remember uh, the classic film, just a beautiful work of art, Avengers Endgame. Um, it's like they are going to try to find uh, Thor. And they think uh, that they're going to get like this guy, right? And so um, this, is who, this is who they're after. Um, a, a woman after the first service, by the way, said, hey, you were standing in front of Chris Helmsworth when that was up there. So I need to make sure I get out of the way so people can see. So... <clears throat> I should have showed this on Mother's Day. But like, so this is who they think, well, as he's riding in, this is, this is their picture of the king. But when he chooses the donkey, this is actually like what it feels like they're getting. Uh, they're getting the, the, the Father's Day version of Thor. Um, thank you for taking that down. Um, what John is trying to tell us, when Jesus sees the, the nationalistic zeal of the people, that's when he opts for the, the donkey. Because the donkey is kind of a protest against people's expectation that Jesus would be a king that shows up and conquers the way that they think he should. Which is good for us, and I think it's a kind of a caution for us too, uh, because we tend to think that we have Jesus cornered into a version of the kind of Jesus that he should be for us. We, we like to kind of shape and mold and kind of configure Jesus into a, a kind of king who would be the kind of king who's all about what we're all about. And that his agenda is our agenda, that his preferences are our opinion, that, that our opinion would be his opinion. But Jesus is a totally different kind of king. You see, a king would ride a horse for war, but when they would ride in on a donkey, it was a symbol of peace. And Jesus is saying, I came to wage peace, not war. So why is he doing this? The disciples don't get it. But in this moment, Jesus is making a statement. He's fulfilling uh, what the prophet Zechariah said in chapter 9, which is why John quotes uh, Zechariah 9.9 here. It says, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, whenever you're reading the Bible, uh, and there's a moment there where the Bible is quoting the Bible, you should go back, and just for reference, go back and look at what that section is about and see why that's in there. So these people would have kind of grown up with that kind of knowledge of what was in the scriptures, but we don't all have that. So it's a good practice for us just when we see the Bible, quoting the Bible, to go back and look and see what that is. So if you look at Zechariah 9, what the prophet is doing there is he's giving a prophecy about the arrival of Alexander the Great about a different conquering king. And, and Alexander the Great would move down from the north to the south. And as he was, he was crushing all the people that were in his way. The, the text in Zechariah 9 kind of builds with this sense of doom uh, as this conquering king is moving towards Jerusalem. Uh, in Zechariah 9, you, you start to feel it. It says, Tyre is struck down and devoured by fire. And Ashkelon shall, be, shall see and be afraid. And Gaza will shake with terror and Ekron's hopes will be dashed and Gaza's king will be will be killed and as he moves down he he's crushing all of these cities the the equivalent would be like if 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 there was a report that there is a an invasion in in North America and the report came down says Canada has been conquered not a lot of response out of you from that so 
Sorry, Canadians. Um, the, the northern U.S. has gone down. He's overthrown the, the Midwest. And as the enemy closes in, Zechariah says, but your Lord will surround you. And behold, your king will be gentle and he'll ride a donkey. And Zechariah goes on to say, he says, when, when your king comes, he will bring peace, not just to Israel, but to the nations. You see, this is all throughout the scriptures, which is why we're so passionate about mission and, and about reconciliation of people and longing to see people from different backgrounds and ethnicities come to worship Jesus because the gospel is not just a home team thing. The gospel is for all peoples. In the book, uh, Exalting Jesus and John, the author says God's plan has always been for all the nations, not just for Israel, to bow and worship before him. In the book of Acts, as we look forward, the gospel spreads to Jew and to Gentile and gives birth to this unique and beautiful, many-faced community of faith called the church, of which we're still a part of. And if you look all the way forward, and when you see in the book of Revelation, there's every tribe, every tongue, every nation represented there. It's noisy, it's loud, it's beautiful. He says his rule will extend from sea to sea and to the end of the earth, and because of his covenant with his people, he will free your prisoners. Let's look at the last little section here in verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So John is a brilliant writer, uh, and there's kind of a little bit of irony here that you should be picking up on it because in John chapter 3 and verse 16, very kind of famous text, uh, it says that God so loved what? The, the world, right? And, and now the Pharisees are saying, look, whole world's going after him. So, so where John paints this picture of what God's desire is, he kind of shows us the heart of the Pharisees, how they're afraid of losing their power and losing their influence. And, and, and the crowd here is, is hungry for, for war. They want Jesus to crush Rome, and the Jewish leaders are scared because they think Jesus is going to start an insurrection. And if he does that, then it's going to totally blow up their whole kind of little world. It's going to mess with their influence. It's going to mess with their power. But, you know, there is a reality that for many of us, the thing that kind of scares us about religion is that it does seem to bring war. It does seem to bring uh, destruction, and not just to nations, but to, to families, to, to relationships. I have a good friend who was, uh, he was raised in a religious home, um, and, and he spent time in the military. He was an army ranger sniper, and he served in the Middle East. And one of the reasons um, that he can't just seem to reconcile Christianity is because of what he has seen done in the name of, of religion, and, and him and I talk about that frequently. We talk about that a lot. And I, and I get it, and I, and I understand. And your experience might not be as dramatic as his, but you still had people in your life who have treated you in a terrible way or said horrible things to you or, 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 or done terrible things in the name of religion. And I understand that. And what I try to share with my friend and what I want to share with you is that it's not so much religion that does that. It's that there's something dark in the human soul that can twist 
any way of thinking to bring forth murder and destruction. And because of our self-centeredness and our self-absorbedness, the problem is not religion. The problem is in us. We have a sickness called sin that we can't fix on our own. Which is why God had to send a hero named Jesus, his only son, who would live a perfect life and be the perfect sacrifice, taking onto himself all of the horrible things in us that we do and that have done and will do to each other and set us free. And you see, religion could never accomplish that, but Jesus has. And I also know that for some of you, giving your life to Jesus is is a really scary thought. Like if you give your life to him, like if you were to put him at the highest place, if you were to do like what Mary did, where you took the thing that was most valuable to you and break it open and pour it on the feet of Jesus, that he might crush you. He, he, might, he, he might crush you socially. He, he, he might crush you professionally. He, he might crush you financially. I mean, if I start showing up and talking about Jesus, I'm going to lose friends, maybe even family. But, but, but if people know that I'm a Jesus person, if people know that I'm a Christian, I mean, I'm gonna, I'll lose opportunities. I, I could lose platform. I could lose influence. I mean, if I really live this Jesus-centered life, I'm afraid of what he'll do to my own agenda, my own plans, my own dreams. You, you see, we do, we have a fear. We might not say it out loud, but we live our lives like it, where we're afraid that Jesus will conquer and crush everything that I hold dear in this life. And sometimes it's really hard, if we're, if we're honest, sometimes it's really hard for us to see Jesus as king. It's hard to see him in his loving rule over our lives because we want to rule over our lives. And, and many times we want to rule over, over Jesus. Uh, like, like, how could we somehow kind of use the Jesus mojo to, to help our own plans? Like, like, how can I manipulate or move or use Jesus to accomplish the things that I really want out of, out of life? Like, how can I manipulate Jesus so he is most useful to me? The problem is we don't see Jesus as a king because we treat him like a pawn. The, the truth is here in this text, there's really only one person who understands what Jesus is all about. That, that he's not there to, to crush but he's actually come to set free. That he's not there to destroy, but to bring peace. Do you know who's on board in this moment? It's not the crowd, because they got their own expectation, they got their own agenda, they got their own plan for what Jesus should do and who they think they should be. It's not the religious leaders, because they're so concerned about their own place and position in the world. It's not the disciples, because John even has to tell us we didn't get it. The person who seems to get it in this moment and in this text is the donkey. The text tells us uh, it's a young donkey, never been ridden before. And I don't know how much time you've spent around donkeys. Um, But you know what happens if you jump on the back of an animal that's never 
been ridden before? Like if you find like a young animal that's never been broken, never been ridden before, and you just jump on his back, do you know what happens? Do you think they're just there like, oh, hey, great, where to? Where do you want to go? No. They'll bite, kick. That's how they kick, like that. They don't like it. You know why? They don't know you. They don't trust you. But in this moment, this young animal that's never been ridden in the middle of this chaotic scene is calm and peaceful. Why? Because he rides with Jesus. You see, when Jesus is king over your life, he doesn't crush you. He sets you free from fear. And this animal rides into the chaos, rides into the crowd, and has peace because Jesus is the one who can rule over you and not crush you. Think for a moment about all the things that have ruled over you in your life. Think for a moment. Just, you don't have to say it out loud. You can just, be, just try to be honest with yourself right now. Nobody else knows you and God. Just try to be honest with yourself. Just think about all the kings that you have followed in your life. Money, success, the approval of others, your politics, your pleasure, your influence, yourself. Now, those things in and of themselves are not bad, but they make horrible kings. And if they haven't already, they will crush you. And you know that. Many of you, you've already experienced that. You've served those things. You've served something other than Jesus as a king, and it's crushed you. And Jesus did not come to crush us, but to be crushed for us. This is is where John's taking us. This is where John has been leading us all along, that Jesus came to die. And and if you want to ride with Jesus, the reality is there's a type of death that's coming for you too. The kind of death where everything else that sits on the throne of your life has to be put to death. Death to everything else that you have an allegiance to that is not him. Death to everything else that you worship and pour out your very best for. That's not him. Why? Because he is the only place that you will find true peace. He is the only one in which you will find true life. And he says, again, abundant life. He doesn't come to crush. He comes to bring peace that's made possible through the crushing of himself. Now, I don't want you to leave here with a picture of of Jesus that is weak because the reality is he is a conquering king 
in the book of Revelation in chapter one, listen to how he's described. He has hair white like wool and snow and eyes like flames of fire and feet like bronze refined in a fire and a voice that thunders like a mighty ocean. He holds the stars in his hand and a sword comes out of his mouth and his face shines like the brightest sun. He wears a robe dipped in blood and he's got a thigh tattoo that says, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. So don't get it twisted. He is a conquering king. John says, when I saw him, I fell over like I was dead. We need to have a proper understanding of who this king is. He's not a king for us to manipulate. He's a king who has come for us to worship. One of my favorite ways of of understanding Jesus, and that's why I'm really loving the book of John right now, because it, it is, at least for me, helping me to just kind of get different uh, like pictures of, uh, of who Jesus is. But one of my favorite ways of understanding Jesus comes from a, a series of writings by a man named C.S. Lewis uh, called the, the Chronicles of, of Narnia. And they're, they're allegorical stories of who God is and what he's up to in the world. And the main character is Aslan, and Aslan reflects the characteristics of Christ. Now, I understand no one outside of Jesus could ever fully describe Jesus, but sometimes um, these analogies help. Uh, and so I, I want to share with you just a little bit about how uh, Jesus is portrayed in some of these um, writings. And, and I, I might spoil some of the story for you in this. I'm sorry if you've never written it, but they've been out like a long time. So you had your chance to read them. You should have probably picked them up by now. Um, but in these books, uh, he's, the, he's the obedient son. Aslan is sent by uh, the great emperor beyond the, beyond the sea. And in fact, there's one moment where Aslan is interacting with the kids and uh, they even say to him, they're like, well, Aslan, couldn't you just kind of go against what the emperor has done? And he, Aslan says, well, I would never do that. I would never go against the one who sent me. And even the, the rules of this world that he's created, Aslan submits to that. He's all powerful and he's always good. There's a moment where uh, the beaver and Lucy are, are, are talking and the beaver says this, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And Lucy says, well, then isn't he safe? And he says, well, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's there in the beginning in the book, The Magician's Nephew. Aslan's there at the creation of Narnia. He came to begin the process of Earth's and his people's redemption and restoration where Aslan is walking towards the stone table, towards his death. The, the freeze on the earth, the great winter, begins to melt. There's a moment where the people that the white witch has turned to stone, Aslan brings them back to life. He takes the sinner's place, um, Edmund betrays his brothers and sisters by telling the white witch that Aslan is in Narnia and the white witch goes to Aslan and says, you know that every, every traitor belongs to me. That, that human is, is mine. His life is forfeit, it's, it's mine. And Aslan doesn't disagree, but he works out a deal where he actually takes the place. In the books, he's the lion and the lamb. Um, there's the moment, probably the saddest moments in the whole story, where Aslan goes to the stone table 
and he's, uh, he's going to be killed. And they, they cut his mane, and they tie his paws down, and it says that the ropes begin to make his paws bleed, and they, they mock him, and they spit on him, and they kick at him. And finally, the witch kills him, and he never tries to stop it. My favorite way that he is portrayed um, is that he's a king who delights in his people. There's a moment after uh, Aslan comes back to life, and he's rolling around uh, and playing with the kids. He's playing with Lucy, and it's really brilliant how C.S. Lewis describes it, how they're just kind of bouncing around and playing. And she uses this phrase where she says, I, I, I wasn't sure whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten. He is the lion and he is the lamb. He is a God of peace. He is a conquering king, but he rides in on a donkey. Jesus is a king indeed. And he's not a king that we make demands of. He's not a king that we try to force into our own agenda, our own preferences, our own plans. The idea is not that we uh, invite Jesus into a way of living that we've designed for ourselves, Because the reality is, is that our King Jesus has given us a better way that he planned before the beginning of time and that he paid for with his life and he secured through his mercy and his blood and his grace. And it's a beautiful invitation from our King. It's an invitation that says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, all who are in chaos, and I'll make you whole, give you peace. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy my burden is light. I did not come to crush you, but to be crushed for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And God, we're so thankful this morning for another moment around your word. Another opportunity for us to see you clearly. Another opportunity, God, for you to just cut through the distractions and God for you to cut through our idols and God for you to cut through our fears and our doubts and God to cut through the lies that we sit under all week and God to give a moment of of clarity and to give us a moment of kindness in who you really are. And Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you came and that you lived this perfect life among us and that you, you gave your life as a ransom, as a sacrifice to put us back together with you, God, so that we would have peace with one another, God, that we would have peace in and of ourselves because of what you've done. And God, as we are in John watching you march slowly towards the cross, God, our, our cry this morning is uh, Hosanna. But our hopes are not tied to you fulfilling what we think you should do. Our hopes are tied to what you've already done. The God who saves his people. 
And so we love you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.